David Crow, and this is episode 256 of The Infectious Myth. 256 is 2 to the power of 8, just, well, just in case you wanted to know that. Email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com, that's crow with an E. Join the discussion and like our page at facebook.com slash theinfectiousmyth, and our discussion group at facebook.com slash groups slash theinfectiousmyth. And the, the difference is that on the group, anybody can post, uh, ass assuming that you uh, behave well and don't start cussing out other people or posting advertisements for Ray-Ban sunglasses or things like that. But so far, everybody's been really good, and it's been a really interesting discussion. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at InfectiousMyth. Listen Tuesdays at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on PRN.FM or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or other programs. You can listen to any of the last five episodes over the phone by dialing the U.S. number 701-719-0990 and following the instructions. PRN.FM has voicemail, 862-800-6805. Leave a message, your name, and indicate that it's for the infectious myth. If you dial either of these numbers, long-distance charges may apply. I don't know that you're a listener until I hear from you, so send me a message letting me know how you stay in touch with the show and what you like about it. If you include your mailing address, I'll send you a little thank you gift, one of the bookmarks I make by hand using my own photographs. I do really love to hear from you, and I certainly am these days, but don't be shy. You can make a one-time donation to the expenses of the show via PayPal using the email david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com or commit to monthly donations at patreon.com or laveradepay.com, where we are also Infectious Myth, one word. I appreciate you commenting and suggesting guests. I appreciate your financial support as well. Thank you for listening and for recommending this show to your friends. Dr. Linda Blade has been the president of Athletics Alberta since 2014. She's worked in Edmonton, Canada as a sport performance professional designing and implementing training programs for athletes from beginning to elite in over 17 sports. Her love of sports developed in village alleys in South America where she grew up, where she challenged all the boys at soccer and other things. She was formerly a Canadian champion in track and field and an NCAA All-American in heptathlon while at the University of Maryland. Following a stint on Team Canada in track and field, she obtained a PhD in kinesiology from Simon Fraser University in Vancouver and is a chartered professional coach in track and field. She's been lucky enough to travel the world with her husband, Stanford Blade, a renowned agronomist, and took advantage of this to work with coaches and athletes in many countries. Welcome to the show, Linda. Thank you very much, Dad. It, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you. Your um, people have talked about you, you quite a bit, both as a former athlete and uh, somebody with some common sense and some of the challenging issues that are facing athletics in the current day. Mm -hmm. But let's go back to your athletic accomplishments. What okay. drove you, what did you learn from those that you can apply to the present day? Yeah, well, <clears throat> um, it's a lot. <laughs> um, playing soccer as a child in South America, which every child who is sport uh, proficient does. Uh, you play soccer yes. in the streets, morning, noon, evening, any spare moment you can find. Um, it was great. And I was absolutely on par 
with the young boys of my age and right. slightly mm-hmm. even slightly older until of course I became a teenager and then all of a sudden right. there is this was in the 70s so showing my age but there really were no teams for girls and I noticed the boys stopped trying as hard against me as I as we got into the teens so I thought you know what something's not right here I think I'd better find sport that I can do on my own so one of the Sundays when I went to you know your typical Bolivia South American uh, Sunday involves a soccer stadium and so we all go to the right. stadium watch the game and one of the part-time halftime shows and it might even have been the game that Pelé the the famous oh, soccer Pelé, Pelé yes yeah. <laughs> he they, I remember they him. came he came from uh, Brazil with Los Santos at the time it was his uh his team in Brazil and they mm. were playing the Bolivia national team and they they had a, a demonstration race um, hundred meter women's race at, at halftime. And it might've been that one, I, or maybe it was a different time, but it was somewhere at a halftime soccer show. And I watched these ladies run. I thought, you know what? I could beat those ladies. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. that hence my track and field career began. And it, it, it was shortly after that, that I came back to Canada briefly with my parents. They need to raise funds for their project in Bolivia. They were you know, North Americans living in Bolivia. And so mm-hmm. then they came home for a little bit. I joined a soccer program in Abbotsford, British Columbia, or sorry, a track program briefly um, and, and ran cross country long distance. And I immediately went back to South America, got on my bike, rat, rode myself down to the local stadium, watched the track practices going on. I walked right up to them and said, can I join? So it wasn't even my parents pushing or anything. I just wanted to join. So of course I had to get my parents to sign the approval and everything, but so it was completely my and my own. Were thing. there girls running at that time, or was yeah. this all boys? No, uh, the club was uh, absolutely a nice balance of females and males, and we were all able to, mm-hmm. you know, train together, but also individually, which I love because really, uh, it became something where you can train, you can all train together. It's all inclusive as a group boys, uh, men and women training together, but then when it comes time to compete, then you're responsible for your own results. And I love that. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so, no, it was no problem at all. And within a few years, um, we got an international German coach, uh, was a, some sort of a exchange with the Bolivian um, High Commission. The Bolivian, I guess it would have been the German embassy in Bolivia, their idea of international aid was to bring a top-level German coach in. Um, to help the national teams and so we got one of the best coaches in Germany uh, coaching me when I was like 15 and I mean all of a sudden I had this amazing coach right in the middle of <laughs> Bolivia um, so you yeah, know that he, is interesting he really got me started on the right foot and in no time I was national champion I had four national records but then it was time to go back to Canada so I went back to Abbotsford to Mennonite um, MEI Mennonite Educational Institute and uh, which was a Christian private school. But anyway, it was great and was only there a couple of years, about a year and a half. And then um, then right away got recruited to the NCAA. And every step along that path, I was not discriminated in any way because I was a woman. But I realized when I got to the United States, then I started hearing about why it was such a big deal to get a scholarship because that was in 1980. So that would have been about eight years after title nine. 
and it was still relatively new. Um, you know, can you explain Title IX yeah. and how? So Title IX was a, a law in the states that came into being that basically um, really enforced the fact that in universities and schools, uh, whatever your whatever programs are being offered to male athletes should also be offered equal opportunity to female athletes. And so mm -hmm. suddenly, you know, the male football players, male uh, baseball, university basketball all of those guys that were getting you know big scholarships and stuff universities had to find a way to fund equal opportunities for the women and the female athletes so equal in the sense i mean i, I don't think that football is is no uh, but it would be by a lot of women yeah but no. you'd have to have something some other sport that yeah. would often it's, gymna it's often it's the, the the countervailing sport to make everything equivalent would be maybe women's gymnastics or women's cheerleading mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there are some, yeah. So as long as you have the same number of sports and the same opportunity, general opportunities, and in track, we we are, you know, we have both sexes in track. So basically, equal number of scholarships for men and for women, right? And I, I just didn't realize that until I started competing in the NCAA, and then everybody was still talking like it was so new. And um, then I realized how lucky I was. Right. And um, so in in the 1960s, say mm -hmm. that was before Title IX, mm -hmm. you, you would not have had that no. opportunity. No, I wouldn't. I would have had to pay for my own university and my own, you know, and this way I was all everything was covered, fees, books, living, everything, as long as I competed well, which, you know, people can argue with that system. But um indentured servant <laughs> but i i mean <laughs> well it's it sounds like you did pretty well i did well if and you were <laughs> yeah i was i was um and and you have to you have to understand that um heptathlon and by the time the 80s rolled around it was heptathlon seven events instead of pentathlon five events so they in the old mm -hmm. during the 1970s when 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 it was bruce jenner uh winning the decathlon which is for men they do 10 events and add up mm -hmm. all the points at that time, 1976, in Montreal Olympics, women only did the pentathlon, which was five events. Mm -hmm. So it, mm -hmm. it has progressed. And I, I really kind of wished, even in the 80s, that they had jumped for women straight into decathlon instead of halfway doing like the heptathlon seven events instead of 10. But be that as it may, we were doing seven events. And that was during the time of Jackie joyner Kersey And and I was fortunate to be able to compete with really a lot of great athletes at that time in the states and um and anyway you have to understand that if you have a pretty good person who's like in a combined events we call it combined events person heptathlete decathlete mm -hmm. they score a lot of points somebody like me would have scored a lot of points at the conference championships for the university because i could be in any number of events and even if i only got third or fourth in individual events I could acquire points, accumulate points for the university, as well as doing the the whole combined events heptathlon. So usually what would happen, like when we were at Chapel Hill, North Carolina, for the um, ACC championships, Atlantic Coast Conference, I would actually, to the first two days of the conference championship, I would be doing the heptathlon, which I won. Mm -hmm. And then and then you could go into each of those individual events the next two days and try to score points again in each of those events individually. Uh, I see. 
So, so it makes um, a heptathlon or for man the decathlon yeah. athlete uh, more valuable, valuable yeah. resource. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so and so like in the one meet, um, one of the guys jumped on the bus after I think that was the one at Chapel Hill, and and basically said, you know, it's the University of of Linda because in on the women's side myself just me and i guess this is a bragging moment so heads up everybody close <laughs> your ears but just because i had been able to be in so many different things i actually scored more points just on my own than the wake forest university women like than the entire women's oh. team of wake forest on that particular meet so it, it it was it was like one of those weird really bizarre things where it wasn't i mean it wasn't so outstanding but it's just that cumulatively you just keep going into all these different things and just getting a point here and point there. It's like air miles, right? And all of a sudden you have more air miles than everybody. Mm. Is there something that made you um, more attuned to sports than other girls your age, do you think? Um, just ability. But, you know, also <laughs> these days when I look at how people talk, clearly clearly i was gender non-conforming i mean mm -hmm. uh, you know the other girls in my school weren't out playing soccer with the boys every lunch and, and like i just love being i had a, my brother was my best friend i had two older sisters they didn't care about playing soccer so but i didn't really it was never sort of it never occurred to me i guess that i was just being so different it was just who i was i like movie i like to be outside mm -hmm. And of course, growing up in South America, you have no television. You don't, we had not, we were always outside, you know, if we weren't playing soccer out in the back, back streets, then we'd be running up the, the, you know, some little stream and getting our feet all wet or whatever, like just doing stuff outside all the time. And I loved it. Meanwhile, my sisters were inside, you know, listening to music or playing dolls or something. I don't know. Like I, I was just different and I didn't, <laughs> I just, I didn't realize, you know, I just didn't didn't occur to me and, and your parents didn't give you any hassle they didn't uh, no i see we it was were, a problem they were religious missionaries and we were in a religious community and I, apparently they tell me now or later in life that the some of the families or men or parents of the other you know religious people there um would complain to my dad about this girl you know scoring goals and all the boys and shouldn't she be more like a girl and like i don't know he just said well leave her alone like she's do she was <laughs> playing what she wants to play and then in, when it was time like sometimes on sunday you know i'd be training with the bolivian team on the sunday and it's like well you shouldn't be training on a sunday and he said well you know and i i basically go for a big long run with the team the track team put a skirt over my shorts ride my bike like crazy dust everything i just walk into church with my skirt skirt over my shorts and like enjoyed the service and it's like well you know when i look back now i must have looked like some little uh i don't know ragamuffin exactly the... some little dust devil <laughs> yes. flying in there um you know what my parents never said a word they said it's her choice oh, that's um she wants to be like that it's totally up to her and during this time did you give any thought to the difference between male and female bodies in terms of athletics like you know presumably the reason yeah. why the boys didn't you know were less interested in playing with you is because yeah. they were getting so much stronger and faster yeah and at, um, i did realize at some point it seemed to me that that yeah they were starting to get a little bit ahead of me although 
when I left the sport of soccer, boys my age still weren't beating me. It's just that I noticed mm. they weren't trying as hard to do the shoulder check. Like they were being more polite. <laughs> and I was yes. like, well, wait a minute, don't not try. Like, what are you doing not trying when I come around? And right. so, yeah, I did know that eventually, because when I watched some of the older boys, like maybe a few years ahead of me in age, and I watched some street games with those guys, I thought, oh, my word, I can't, you know, that is amazing. Like, they're so strong. And I, you know, it's so cool, David, because when I go to the national stadium or the soccer stadium on the Sundays, and they allowed the children down by the field just the way they do in some hockey games in some NHL places where you can stand behind a rope and watch the players go mm -hmm. from the locker room to the field or to the playing zone. And right. I remember like, even as a nine-year-old, I mean, I'd stand behind that sort of wire or rope and I watched those professional men walk past me to the to the field and the quads like I'd just be staring at <laughs> yes. their quads going what is this this is like these muscles like incredible right I I obviously knew that it would never be me I mean I I appreciated it though I guess <laughs> I guess it's not uh it's no surprise I became a sports scientist but I mean uh you know I yeah. just enjoyed every part of sport every part of what it made for you know, what makes human performance work. And I don't mm. know, I just didn't, I just found ways that I could do it appropriately for whatever. Like, you know, if soccer wasn't going to welcome me anymore, then I, you know, and that was always an official games anyway, I might as well go and do something official for with women. Right. right? <laughs> so as, you know, post, post puberty, and, yeah. and we're going to talk about the transgender issue later, but yeah. Uh, it's important to recognize the natural differences in in male and female bodies and from an athletic perspective so yeah. so what are some of the differences that are important in various sports like strength or speed yeah. or that kind of stuff well yes we have you know if you go to study at university we call them biomotor abilities so you have you have this triangle and at the top, if you think about the three points of a triangle, you have strength on the top and then you have speed on the right hand. If it's like a triangle where there's, you know, right, left and then top. And then you have speed on the right hand side and you have stamina or endurance on the other side. So you have mm -hmm. you know, strength, speed, and then all of those, like if you have a combination of strength and speed, then in the middle along that side of the triangle would be power right and then the mm -hmm. others so you have you can go around and then inside is like balance and flexibility so there's a lot of different aspects of sport and each sport combines these biomotor abilities in different ways for example if you're a basketball player speed is important you know explosive power is important for dunking the ball or whatever uh balance coordination you know with the inside the triangle different kinds of things so every sport kind of has a combination of these so when it's um, when it's physical and it you know the 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 performance is derived from the large muscle groups, especially in the legs, and and especially in the shoulders and th things like that. And of course, then you get into the stamina, which is the cardiovascular. I mean, every mm. single one of those things that you look at that comprise that that build that you put together to make your performance work in a sport 
men have an advantage over women in everything, almost everything except one. And I would say women have more uh, capacity and flexibility. Like if you looked at rhythmic gymnastics, mm -hmm. I would say like, because rhythmic, normal gymnastics, you know, artistic or whatever, like that's very explosive. So that's a lot of power. So mm -hmm. men have the mm -hmm. advantage. They can do the iron cross. They can do all these flips and jumps on the floor. But when it's, when it's the coordination, flexibility, circus type acts, where you can like, right. some women can bend their shoulders to and back like they can back bend till their shoulders touch their hips like I've when i never... go to cirque oh. du soleil and yes. i see some of those people yes. it makes me it's i get a really almost, creepy feeling I know. it's like it makes me feel how like do nauseous. they <laughs> yes <laughs> like how, how are they gonna pull themselves back together again so i suspect that that's probably why they haven't had a lot of men's rhythmic <laughs> but i mean yes. but i mean in most of the other things, you gotta admit, men like it's just about size, strength, and and physiological, um, cardiovascular capacity, and, and you know, there's just very clearly a physical element that gives men an advantage over women. So it's not a secret because I mean, you look at world records in swimming, you look at world records in track and field, you. You look at the NBA or NHL. I mean, there's a reason that they're men on one side and women on another side. I mean, that it's so obvious. And it's, I, you know what? I would have been floored if you had told me 20 years ago that I'd have to go back someday and explain this to people. Like, I, I just don't <laughs> think, I don't think this is a mystery to most people, actually, David. No, I mean, it's like you as a nine-year-old yeah. looking at these uh, soccer players yeah. and, 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 kind of amazed yeah because you know if you look at your non-athletic parents or yeah. whatever you're, you're not going to see that but no. when you see like a, a roman athlete yeah. <laughs> type yes. person yes. with these massive um cut, muscles and, cut and zero and body the, yeah <laughs> right and, and like the, the calves you can't you help but notice moving. it yeah i mean it was just like they were like demigods you know it's like look at these guys like their legs and they're all mm. shiny and most of them had just had a massage or something they're all greased up and man like you just right. watch these legs walk past you as a little kid and you just go holy <laughs> yes. smokes like that is yes. something right uh so let's talk about the benefits of athletics to girls and women because yes. for so long throughout history athletics was really considered a male thing mm -hmm. and any woman who wanted to do athletics was yeah. considered a bit strange yeah. so what have you seen throughout your years in sports about right. how it it benefits them Oh, well, you know, it's, it's physically, obviously it gives you great confidence to, to have achieved something. I mean, it, it's, you know, physically it's even better for you in the long run because a lot of our bone density and our structures, like whether you're talking posture or, 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 um, endurance or, or just, you know, even basic muscles, muscle tone you know, you might get a little flabby once in a while when you're in, in your womanhood. Like if you, like I had two children, you have a baby, you gain weight, you kind of get saggy and then you just can move, your body can bounce back. And like, mm -hmm. there's just so many ways that it really can help you. Um, and, and, and studies, a longitudinal study at University of Saskatchewan, um, about, you know, about 15 years ago, really identified the importance of 
some sort of impact muscle pulling on bone like when you're active it does stimulate the bones to take in the calcium if you're eating right it'll take in the calcium right and about 20 percent of the entire bone mineral content of your lifetime is laid down in the teen years like in your young years Mm -hmm. and um and at some point in life everybody doesn't matter how how active you've been or whatever your life has been like by the time you're in your 40s the bone mineral starts to sort of diminish so that your bone density diminishes over that you know and then that's why at some point in old age you, you know you start getting osteoporosis but the people who are super active when they were younger have a lot longer to go before all that money if you call bone you know bone mineral content into your bones and the density if that's money in the bank you have a higher bank account so that you can go a right. lot longer in life before the bone becomes brittle and and low in density enough to be breaking and stuff like that so it really even has a benefit into old age that you've actually been active um and so there's things there but it's a lot of its character and a lot of you know and i and i will say that most women in the fortune 500 companies or like those kinds of big companies if there's a woman who's a ceo almost inevitably she's had a sport background just it gives you such character self-confidence you, you learn how discipline. to lose yeah just getting up discipline. at 3 3 a.m <laughs> to to go to practice yeah right? like you really have to want to do it yeah and it's not really even well discipline is one thing for sure like it but understanding team teamwork understanding mm-hmm. you don't always get what you want understanding that just because um you know you lose it doesn't mean that you can't continue and prevail because mm-hmm. you know sport in every sport competition only one team or one person wins especially in track and field you've got it eight finalists only one of those people are going to win and the amount mm-hmm. of time you spend losing compared to everybody else um you know, you just learn how to compete. Like you learn that just because somebody beats you on day one doesn't mean they're going to beat you on day three and you've got to figure it out and you got to learn how to win. And it's just, it just, I think it changes your framework on, on competitiveness, on durability, personality wise and physical. I, I just think there's so many benefits to girls who, who can enjoy sport. I mean, it's not for everybody, but I mean, there is a great benefit to it, for sure. Um, so let's talk about the transgender issue. And, and I, I think mostly transgender women, because I, I think in sports, it's a much bigger um, issue. Yeah. Because you have male bodies uh, competing. Um, mm-hmm. um, there's a, a Connecticut uh, lawsuit mm-hmm. from some tra- young track athletes who are complaining um, about um, young men coming yes. in as transgender women and um, yes. cleaning up. Uh, and, and that affects uh, not, not only the fact that the women are demotivated, but also this issue of scholarships. Just, you know, without even seemingly much consultation, just decided in 2015, yeah, 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 if you say you're a girl and you want to live if a, if a male athlete wants to live as a woman in society and just prove that you've done that for a year, reduce your testosterone to a certain level and you know, 
you know, have at her, go into the women's events. Like, and does reducing testosterone have, um, you know, reduce performance? It doesn't reduce the advantage. It doesn't reduce the advantage because, you know, you can reduce your testosterone, but I mean, that's not going to change the length of your arm or, or the, the size of your lungs, you know, and your heart, the size of your heart, the volume of the blood that's pumping through your system that gives you, like in terms of the endurance events, big advantage. It's not mm -hmm. going to change your muscle structure. It's not going to, you know, like this, those soccer guys I was looking at, it wasn't, it's not going to take those muscles that I was watching walk past me and put them back into some sort of a female package. Like, it's just not going to be like that. And I mean, yeah, because they've, they've had testosterone all through male puberty, yeah, uh, and not only which that, is when I mean, it counts. Yeah, but not only that, it's still categorically different. Like, if it, a female is not just a male body with less testosterone. Right. <laughs> like we are completely different. Yeah, and like the hip structure and things like that. that everything uh, is different. I mean, it's yeah. not like, if, if that were true, if, we, if females were just straight up, you reduce the testosterone and then you're exactly... Or in the other way, conversely, if I were right now, I'm a female, if I took a bit of testosterone, then I'd look exactly like all the men around me. Well, come on. That's just, <laughs> that is just such a lie. I mean, yes. it's not like, you know, testosterone levels are the only thing we're talking. We're talking about 6,000 biological variables that make females different than males. And, and testosterone, you know, granted, it's a big one, but it's not the only one. And, right. um, so I, I guess I continue to be in shock that the International Olympic Committee will allow this. And um, especially in view of, you, you know, the history of women's sport, you were asking me earlier about my, my journey through sport. And, and let's talk about women's journey through sport. I mean, when de Coubertin, you know, introduced the Olympics in, 19, in 1896, uh, the modern Olympics, to revive it from the old Greek um, games of yore mm -hmm. um the women, women weren't in the first one and then women were only allowed to start participating in 1900 four years later mm -hmm. 1900 but it was only in tennis and golf something like that and then it took another 28 years so 1928 for women to finally be accepted into track and field in the olympics and then even at that it was like only in four or five events Whereas the men had, you know, huge number of events that they did. And so if you start tracking the events that were added gradually over the century, it was 84 years after women were first allowed in the game. So 1900 to 1984, LA Olympics. 1984 was the first time in Olympic history women were allowed to do the marathon, for example. So mm. it took 84 years for consultation, consideration, looking at the safety, all these different things to allow women to do a marathon. And, and you can see, obviously, in our society, people run marathons all the time, fun runs, Boston Marathon, everywhere. So it takes 84 years to make a decision to include woman, women when they want to do something. But it takes <laughs> one year to decide when you want to have a guy, a male who wants to self-identify. That that is I mean, a very interesting point that I had not thought about at all. Because yeah. you're right, it was a it was a century struggle. I mean, even in '84, yeah. I'm sure it still hadn't fully equalized. Well, and and it wasn't because 
they still had to add women's pole vault. They still have, and they still don't let us do the full decathlon. So we're almost on parity. So you go mm. through a century where we're almost there now. We're almost exactly equal. And now what happens? Oh, well, now you have to accept guys into your events. So, so another, just, another argument is there's just not very many transgender athletes. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really matter. Well, you know what? It only takes three, two or three, and then women quit. Because if you're going to have three men on a podium and you like these back to the Connecticut girls, if you already know who's going to win because you have a man or two men in, well, male, male athletes in your race, you already know the outcome, but then, then that's not sport because sport has to be contested with a somewhat unknown outcome. I mean, even if there's a woman who's really dominant, like in my day, you go into heptathlon with Jackie Joanna Kersey, you're going to get whooped. But <laughs> I mean, if, you know, if you, if you put a guy but in. I, I mean, even in that case, you know, if she was having a bad day or something yeah, is still a possibility, win. right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, but now the only time any one of those Connecticut girls has ever beat one of those guys or those young male athletes is um, um, when one of them false started and had to be out of the race. So um, it's just one of those things where it just so the sheer ridiculousness of it is, is just hard to convey from my perspective, having been in sport all my life, it's just so hard to convey how ridiculous the situation really is. Um, I mean, it's just not sport. It's not sport. Like it's just become then a social experiment. It's, it's not, so it's not sport at all. Yes. And you know, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, another issue is, is like are these uh males genuinely trans or are they just you know second rate male athletes who realize that they've got a path to a college scholarship right. all they need to say is they're a, a girl and mm -hmm. um they are going to start winning something they yeah. might not have been able to do as as uh in male sports right well let me say that there might be one or two and, and I've listened to um, interviews with, for example, June Eastwood, which is used to be um, a male athlete in Montana who was running NCAA as a, in the men's track and now some change to women's track and, of course, winning conference championships. But, you know, when I listen to an interview with that that young person, I mean, I mean, I'll call it they because I don't know whether to call him, her, what, but that person seems to be really quite kind and quite sincere and yet it doesn't change the fact that in my opinion and in the opinion of any biologist they're violating the eligibility rules and mm. and and so yeah so so the point is what you're asking is are some legit like really have this honest you know see themselves as women and i would say how do you know like i i mm. guess and, and it, if I put on my hat of president of track and field in Alberta, if a person presented themselves at a competition and it was clearly a young man or a young male athlete and they wanted to go into the girls race, I mean, we'd have to deal with the fact we don't have, there's no, there's no test of are you sincere or not. And it, that really even shouldn't be 
no, the, no. It, it, I mean, I, and I wasn't really saying that there should be a way to tell, but yeah. what I was saying is there's there's more motivations than just feeling like you're transgender, oh. no, and, okay. and and they could yeah. they could apply in some cases. But I mean, it, yeah. it, it doesn't matter if you're if if you sincerely believe that you're a woman, yeah. or that you're just an opportunist. The yeah. impact on <clears throat> women's on athletics women. is the same. Huge. Well, and here, let, let me tell you the other thing. It's it's not even about like scholarships is one thing, but let's talk about, go back to the granddad or the, the big daddy of them all, the IOC, International Olympic Committee and the Olympic Games. I don't know if people understand the motivation that would be there for countries now to, to convince a, a male athlete, now that it's legal in the IOC's eyes. I mean, the 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 impact of a single olympic medal for a country is huge i mean mm. there are countries in the world that have never won olympic medals before right. and even for a country like canada and every single medal is cherished and um when when somebody when an athlete wins an olympic medal what happens downstream from that is people's the people who run sport in the bureaucracy of that country, it keeps, it, it means they keep their job. It means mm. they get, maybe even get a pay raise. Um, in Canada, the, the sports that win more medals get a bigger chunk of the Sport Canada budget. Mm -hmm. um, so downstream from a medal is a lot of, of, of uh, nest feathering. And um, what would, I can't even imagine how people aren't um, tempted to, like if you're Bangladesh, okay, find a young man from the streets of Bangladesh, say, hey, you know, say you're a woman, take a, you know, let's, let's give you some hormone therapy. Go ahead, just go in there quickly because before too many are in there, you could win a medal. Like, I, I don't know if the IOC understands that they're setting up this thing it could turn into a total gong show, I think you're saying, yeah. where, where you have this flood of male-bodied athletes that, that completely change the, yeah. the look of, of women's athletics at the first Olympics where it's, it's fully open. And, right. and it, it might take a couple more uh, quadrennials, because people will be quite shy at first to do this. And it's so obvious mm. that it would be almost a shameful thing. But I think over time, as people get used to, because all it's going to take, the same thing I say with U Sport in Canada, because it's allowed in U Sport. Right now, you don't see a lot of that happening. But you know what? All it's going to take are one or two guys to be have the chutzpah to say, yeah, I'm going to call myself a woman and go in there. And then you think the next team's not going to? Because if if the coach of Team A, who's being completely polite about it and won't won't find a guy to do that, but then team B goes ahead and does that and they win the conference championship or the, the, you know, the national championship. And then that coach that didn't get those points, that coach gets fired because he doesn't, he didn't produce well the way he was supposed to pretty soon. Right. You're going to have people saying, well, you know, my, to have skin in the game, I have to do this. I have to put these guys in it because the other team's doing it. So I'm going to have to put my guys in there. It, also, safety is an issue that comes up, you know, there, mm -hmm. sports like rugby, for example, um, I mean, rugby, male rugby athletes are pretty 
big people. And, yeah. I, and I know oh, female huge. rugby athletes are too, but I think it's a huge yeah. difference. Um, and, and there would be the pressure that every team needs a couple of male bodies in order oh, yeah. to compete. Because if one yeah. team gets a couple of males on it, they're just gonna dominate. And then you've got the, the women playing second fiddle because the stars are always the males. Yeah. And then there's the safety of being crushed by some 250, 300 pound um, male. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the silverbacks, <laughs> they'll all come in there and step on everybody. I mean, seriously, it's just, um, um, it is a huge concern, uh, the safety of for women and girls. And it's, it's safety in the actual physical safety, like, you know, obviously in a contact sport, like you're talking about, women have already gotten injured. And the interesting thing in rugby, to, as a sort of anecdotal sidetrack thing, is it's not anecdotal, it's actually very real, is that rugby officials on the field are responsible for injuries. So I can imagine why uh, the rugby officials are saying, we don't want to have anything to do with this because the guys are going to be running right into women and breaking arms and legs. So yeah. um, nobody wants to be held responsible for that. And, um, but, but, but let's talk about safety in another con in another way. Um, locker rooms, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, if it's in the context of gra grassroots sports, all of a sudden we have to accept a male body saying, well, I can be the female chaperone for the girls in the hotel. Mm. Um, I can, you know what I'm saying? Like, where does it end? Like what? When, when I was um, uh, a kid, I was heavily involved in uh, Boy Scouts and mm. my uh, cub leader was also the guide leader or something. Her husband was always very supportive. And so he would go out to the guide camp and he'd set everything up. But the yeah. rule was he had to be off the campsite before the first girl showed up. But now mm -hmm. you have males identifying as women and they can be a girl guide leader. They can mm -hmm. be um, a girl guide. Um, mm -hmm. And all of these, these issues of, of keeping, you know, teenage, young teenage girls away from mm -hmm boys um mm. for you know to to have their own space where mm. you know romantic relationships don't disrupt things or or right. there's unwanted sex sexual contact things like that mm. all thrown out the window as you say everybody wants to be nice to everybody right. who doesn't um, right. fit in um, are there any successes in terms of pushing back uh, against this like you, you're working with athletics Alberta I mean have they yeah. said anything about this well um, I don't know whether it's been actually tested yet and I guess it's uh, in front of us but um, we were told and this is kind of how I got became aware of the issue in the first place was around 2018 when I had to be on a national I was you know all the presidents of each of the provincial branches of sport have a monthly conference call and um, there was this um, proposal you know put out through the Ministry of Sport and and the Canadian Center for Ethics and Sport they wanted us to have transgender policies they wanted us to implement a cut and paste kind of thing that they give all the sport groups to just accept this mm. and and so I was asked to join a panel a gender committee or whatever to review what was sort of 
being proposed. And I, you know, since I'm one of the only the president, female presidents of a provincial sport governing branch, um, you know, if it's a gender committee, there's if and if there's only you know a few of us. I mean, one of us has to be a woman, and that was me. And I didn't mind um, being on that committee for two reasons: one, because I am a woman in sport, but also because my PhD is in physical anthropology, which is human biology. So, right. <laughs> I mean, I think that I do have a little bit of a background in this stuff. And so I thought, well, this is interesting. So I, you know, I go on this and I'm looking at the documentation coming from above in Ottawa and these basically these national sport entities. And I'm, I'm thinking, what is going <laughs> on here? Um, complete uh, dismissal of the idea that there's sex, that there's differences, that sexual dimorphism exists, that there's a difference between men and women. Somehow, as long we're just supposed to accept that if somebody self IDs and this is Bill C sixteen and blah blah blah, and, and it's just like I felt like I fell right into Alice in Wonderland. I just didn't know what what is going on here, and um, I was quite bewildered actually. It, it really hit me hard, and I had not seen this coming, and um, so I thought, well, what does our policy say in Athletics Alberta? And I mean, I'm not just going to cut and paste some policy that is going to destroy women's sport. So, so basically, I, we, as a board, have been very conscious to be reviewing and thinking through. But, I mean, as it stands in Alberta, and this has always been the case, our sport is com we compete on the basis of biological sex. So when you sign mm. up, to join our association, you sign up, the, the box says male or female. Right. You have to check a box, okay? And then once you check that box, then the next step is you go and you have to sign the code of conduct. Well, in the code of conduct under athlete oblig obligations and responsibilities, Guess what it says? Athletes are to properly represent themselves and not attempt to participate in a competition for which they are not eligible for reasons of age, biological, sex, and other reasons. In other words, you can't misrepresent yourself. You can't go to a competition and say you belong to another club when you belong to this club. You can't say you're a 12-year-old right. when you're a 16-year-old. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. the existing eligibility and code of conduct guidelines that we have are just not amenable to somebody self-declaring into another sex category. I mean, if you if you want to, um, if let's say a person came along, they they were male, but they just decided, oh, I'm just going to check the female box. That's not accurate, and that's a falsehood. Mm -hmm, we mm -hmm. can accept. I mean, you can run in the guy's race with a dress on. I don't care. Right. Mm -hmm. But we compete on the basis of biological sex. So basically, the way we just basically clarified after that that on on those things, a male-born um, athlete must compete in the male category and a male and a female athlete can compete um in the male category you know um if they want to self-declare in the male because there's no we we operate the on the idea of of um absence of competitive advantage so right right so and then in the terms of the female case um if and they have to and it says very clearly if if a female athlete is self-declaring as transgender, they must provide the documentation. And then 
we have to see if there's hormone therapy going on because of that's doping. Right. Um, so at some point their eligibility because of the doping regulations. So there's right. already existing legis- there's already an existing framework to deal with it, even though we can be polite. I mean, if they want to be called a different name, um, you know, but come on, like we compete on this basis. This yes. is, these yeah. are the guidelines, right? Yeah. And so we uh, haven't been you, forced to change that. Yes. Well, do you, yeah. some people have criticized uh, sports management or, you know, sort of the people in administrative positions uh, yeah. as too male dominated, that there are too many athletic associations that are dominated by men who maybe don't mm. get this the same way that women like yourself do. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true. It's true because like, like men, for some reason, David, I think, and it's quite, think, I think I can accurately say this. I just, in my personal experience, men just don't take this as seriously as women do, because Mm -hmm. I don't, I think as a male, it's hard to understand how threatening this can be, can feel and is when something threatens your own realm, it, it makes you sit up and take note a lot more promptly than if it's just somebody else's problem. Well, I think, you know, men um, who have athletic daughters, you know, probably yeah. get it because- Oh, they get it for sure right away, yeah. <laughs> see it, so there there are some, but um, yeah. I agree that, you know, it's it's it doesn't hit the men in the face. Um, if If you were, as yourself, grew up as a female athlete, you mm-hmm. understand, very much how this would have made a, a difference. You know, if, if when you were in Bolivia wow. running on the track team, if some of the males had mm. self-identified onto your team and run in the female no races. <laughs> no chance, no chance at all. And, yes. and, I, and I can see that in an instant. Um, and I'm not saying that men don't appreciate because I, I know they do when I, when I talk to them privately, but it's interesting as you climb the hierarchy in sport, it becomes more of, oh, well, we're not going to say anything about it because it might affect our funding. We're not going to, like, it, it becomes a bit more of a political, shit, right? yeah, yeah, it yeah. becomes a little bit more of a political, um, um, you know, something where you're trying to weigh the cost benefits of fighting the fight and, or being, you know, very strict about, you know, interpretation of the law because i would even say when you look at bill c-16 itself in canada uh whether you allow men and women's sports or men and women's prisons that is not necessarily what bill c-16 says Mm -hmm. it's just that's how that's how the leadership is interpreting so when you're the head of a prison service that's how you interpret it when you're the head of a sport organization you're told to interpret it that way I mean, it's incredible. It's incredible to me because, uh, I mean, in in that situation, also in prisons, and I've interviewed a a woman who was in prison herself and advocates for women in prison. Heather Heather Mason. Yeah, Heather Mason. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the impacts are so predictable. You have these males sexually attracted to men who are twice the size of these women. Many women have been used to, um, you know, using their their body for various 
sexual purposes because you know yeah. they grew up with abuse or whatever yeah so they're very yeah. vulnerable it, it's like mm -hmm. you can just see exactly what's going to happen exactly. except the prison Not officials happen. can't see it right and it's it's amazing how how they can't see it like i guess that's where i'm getting and, and then going all the way full circle back to the international olympic committee mostly men mostly powerful men mm -hmm. how do they not see this is I, I it just that the women is like the the, the, the catch-all bin of the problems that men don't want in their sport like i i don't i i am really mystified it, it, it is it, it is a mystery and it's going to be interesting to see how this works out um mm. we pretty much come to the end of our time if yeah, there's sure. one more thing that you'd like to um get out oh no i i just really want to thank you dave for having the courage to cover these issues i listened to a few of your podcasts are excellent i i know that in small town canada and, and and more than just in sports all across this country we're really struggling with this issue and and it doesn't help to not have the freedom to express our concerns like i think the politicians have shown reluctance to talk about it everybody's hiding it it's, it's not like the press doesn't cover this too much they're a little bit uneasy about it and if they do cover it it's always with like look at this hero who wants to become a woman i i just feel like it's going to take time i think it's really going to take time for people to say listen we're all just human let's just have this conversation i mean yeah stop, stop trying to cut down shut down the conversation let's have this conversation let's do it like i don't i'm ready you know come in let's talk um, yeah and i've tried to um talk to some transgender activists and haven't had any success so far yeah. the the one that i've i've talked to uh, jen smith from bc is actually right. quite cool. supportive yeah. of of yeah. women's rights like he recognizes yeah. that he's not a biological female right. uh, even though he he presents like a, mm. a female in some in yeah. some cases yeah. Yeah. I would just like to thank you for uh, mm. sharing your knowledge and your experience mm. and thoughts thank on you. this important issue. Yeah, Thanks. thank you, David. I appreciate it. We'll see you, talk to you another time, maybe. Okay. Okay. Great take talking care. to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, bye. And now time for a wee bit of feedback. Shiona on Facebook, thank God for your posts. They keep me sane. Deborah on academia.edu. I continue to collect empirical research in hopes of educating those who are ready to open to solid facts on the coronavirus. Everyone around me is wearing masks, social distancing, and is consumed by irrational fear. I love your research, and I thank you for all you've put together. I'm currently watching the most violent arrest of a woman who is not socially distancing as the police tear her away from her small child and put her in a police van. It's incredibly brutal, sheer ignorance and injustice, 30 cops and one woman with her small child and utter disgrace. This is how we descend into a police state. It starts with people supporting it, the people around saying, yes, she's an evil woman, she's not social distancing. Christopher on Facebook. I linked Dr. Andrew Kaufman to your interview with Judy Mikovits, as well as your SARS chapter under his recent YouTube presentation critiquing the scientific papers which got this whole shambles going. He seems to have found the way to the same territory. Hopefully you guys can talk soon. I found your coronavirus essay very early too, which I'm grateful for because 
What I learned in it, I've been able to bring a skeptical, unworried look into my household. Most helpful. I guess that feedback was received before the Andrew Kaufman interview. I've had so much feedback, I'm getting a bit behind. Ryan on Facebook, I really enjoy your show. People around me are going into panic mode, setting up Zoom chats as a way to socialize with their friends. Your show has been a breath of fresh air on the topic. And uh, no pun intended, but I think we all need a breath of like, fresh air. Go outside, sit on the grass, go for a walk, go for a run, get back to normal life. Connor, via email, going back to the James Lyons Weiler podcast. Thank you for your podcast. It's one of the few places that presents unbiased information related to COVID that isn't being censored and removed from the internet. Please keep doing what you're doing. I'm one of your listeners that has been actively searching for reliable information and doing my best to spread awareness. It's a tough gig since even the mention of information contrary to the popular narrative is often immediately dismissed and laughed off as conspiracy theory and misinformation. I've listened to all your COVID episodes multiple times and specifically had a question about the episode where you interviewed James Lyons Weiler. From my understanding, one of the challenges around the validity of the COVID testing process is that we have yet to purify, isolate the parts of the RNA that make up this virus. Therefore, we can't really distinguish between COVID RNA and non-COVID RNA. What I would say is that the RNA has been sequenced, which is as close as you're gonna to get to purification but there's no proof that it comes from a virus. We know that it comes <clears throat> from nasal swabs, but it could come from human cells. And, and this is the really important question. Is the COVID RNA viral or not? Thank you for listening to episode 256 of The Infectious Myth. If you have a comment, question, or suggestion for a future guest, please email me at david.crow at theinfectiousmyth.com like us at facebook.com slash the infectious myth. Join the group at facebook.com slash groups slash the infectious myth. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at infectious myth. Commit to monthly donations of any amount to infectious myth on patreon.com or liberatepay.com. Until next week, thank you and goodbye. <laughs>